Good morning. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. Glad that you are with us. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open to 1 Corinthians 13. As Mike just read, we will be in verses 8 through 13. And as you turn there, I want to talk about my favorite holiday, which is Christmas. All right, raise your hand if your favorite holiday is Christmas. All right, hands down. Thanksgiving? Wow, there's some Thanksgiving. Okay, Uh, Easter? Valentine's Day? Flag Day? <laughs> Great. Okay, well, my favorite holiday is, uh, is Christmas. Uh, who has already put up a Christmas tree? All right. Who has uh, already put lights on their house? All right. Let's take a survey of the types of Christmas tree. All right, so let's find out who's real and who's fake. All right, who, who uses a uh, real Christmas tree? All right, artificial. Who goes and cuts down their own? That's what my family does. Great. Uh, okay. Uh, raise your hand if you've done absolutely nothing for Christmas. Okay. Who has already started shopping for Christmas? All right. Great. Well, whether you like it or not, it's officially Christmas season. Some of you may have had trees up since like the day after uh, Halloween or something like that. But now at least you have social sanction. You don't seem like the weirdo uh, when you do that. Thanksgiving's over. It is now Advent. It is officially Christmas season. So one last survey question. How many of you have already started some sort of a Christmas wish list? Not that you've purchased something for someone else, but you've written down a few things that you would like for Christmas. Now I want you to think about all of the gifts that you've ever gotten in your life for Christmas. All right? And if I were to ask you how many of them you could uh, remember, I would imagine the percentage would be pretty low. And if I were to ask you how many of them do you still have, I would imagine the percentage would be uh, even lower. Partly that's because, unless it's like the jelly of the month, the gift that keeps on giving, right, then, uh, then I would imagine most of the gifts that you've ever received in your life, even over just the past five, ten years or something like that, are no longer in your possession, they're, uh, they're obsolete, they're, they're worn out, or whatever it might be. I remember when I was maybe 15 or 16, I begged my parents to get a TV that I could put into my room. And so they did. The, the problem with that is uh, it was, you know, the early 90s, and so I got like a 12-inch little box TV set. But at the time, I was overwhelmed with excitement about getting this uh, TV that was like the, you know, the height of technology at the time. Now, if you were to give me that particular TV set, I I don't know that I would have any use for it, right? It's archaic. It's obsolete. Or uh, whenever I was, I don't remember how old, maybe six, seven or something like that, I got a uh, Superman bike. It was a bike that was painted the colors of Superman and had the big S uh, on there. And uh, whenever you would press a particular button, it would play the Superman theme song as you uh, rode down uh, the street. I would love to still have that bike today. I'd give it to my, uh, my son. But I think it was uh, broken very quickly after Christmas whenever I tried to jump a ramp. And obviously by ramp I just mean, you know, uh, a piece of board and bricks. And that's it. Basically the ramp breaks and then you break. And uh, so that was kind of my experience with that. I don't know how long I had that bike, but it wasn't very long because of that. Uh, and that's the, the reality for most of the gifts that I've ever gotten in my lifetime. I think back over all the gifts I've ever received, 
and such an infinitesimally small number are actually still in my possession today. Right? There is this, this transient, temporary nature of the gifts that we give uh, and the gifts that we receive. The, the, that thing that you love today, that thing that you treasure today, one day it will be relegated to a landfill. And that sort of transient nature of gifts is what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 13 as well. These spiritual gifts which the Corinthians are fighting over, they're obsessed with, they're anxious about, those very gifts that they treasure today are impermanent. They are transitory. One day they'll go away. But Paul's going to contrast that and say there is one thing that won't. We talked about it last week. We'll talk about it again this week. And that one thing is love. So let's pray and then we'll dive in together to see what Paul says. I ask you first just to pray for yourself. And then will you pray for those around you that the Lord would collectively prepare our hearts to receive his word. And then lastly, would you pray for me that the Lord would help me to communicate his word in a way that actually glorifies him and edifies his people. So, Father, in this season where we have thought about giving thanks, we're grateful for the gifts that you have given us. And ultimately, as we celebrate with Advent and Christmas, we're grateful for the gift of your Son. And we're grateful for uh, your Scripture, which testifies to him, and your Spirit, uh, which you have given to illuminate your Scripture. And so pray that you would help us now. We would have eyes to see and ears to hear. Pray these things because you're good and you do good. So we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Let's look at verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 13. It begins with, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. So last week, Jared preached that big wedding text, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 7. We all know it. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It bears all things. It believes all things, etc. So now you see that same idea open our passage this week. Love never ends, right? It's, it's like uh, Rick Astley. It's never going to give you up or let you down. That's kind of the literal meaning of the, uh, the, the phrase here in Greek. Literally in the Greek, that phrase, love never ends, is uh, love never falls. So think kind of uh, of the, the, the changing of the seasons and the falling of leaves in autumn. Right? The leaves die, they fall away, they perish, but love never does. It never ends. And in that way, love is going to be different from the spiritual gifts that Paul's been talking about that the Corinthians are obsessed with. Remember, we have to understand the context here. 1 Corinthians 13 is smack dab. I don't know what smack dab means, but it's smack dab in the middle of chapters 12 through 14, which is all about spiritual gifts. So don't forget that context. Love is being in some sense distinguished from those other gifts. Love is superior to these other gifts. 
Some of the Corinthians, as we talked about, were wallowing in self-pity because they didn't have what they thought to be really cool gifts like tongues and prophecy or they didn't get to stand on a stage and preach or teach or whatever it might be. So some were wallowing in self-pity. Others were puffed up with pride because they did possess those really cool gifts. They did possess these certain gifts that, at least in their culture, were kind of elevated and prized and exalted. So neither side is thinking rightly about the gifts. Both were thinking about themselves, which is ironic because the whole purpose of the gift is so that we might serve others. So there was division in the church as a result of these Gifts Again, that's ironic given the fact that the gifts were given for the edification and the encouragement and the harmony and the unity of the church. The gifts were given in order to unify the church, but the Corinthians were using them to actually divide the body. And that was all what we saw in chapter 12. Then verse 31 of chapter 12 says, But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. What is that higher gift? What is that more excellent way? That's what 1 Corinthians 13 is all about. In a word, it is love. Now, love is obviously a buzzword in our society, right? We love tacos. We love football. We love the Aggies, even though they always let us down. We love our pets. We love Thanksgiving dinner and so forth. So what is love? We've given this definition before. We'll put it up on the screen. Love is doing what is best for others. Understanding that that has to be defined by Scripture, right? not how culture defines what's best for others, but love is doing what is best for others as defined by Scripture. Notice this last phrase, even when it costs you. Love is doing what is best for others even when it costs you. So what does that have to do with gifts? What well, means that you should use your gifts for the good of the others and not for your own selfish desires. So that's all the context of our passage Today, love is marked by all of these attributes that we talked about last week, kindness and and so forth, and it's also marked by permanence. It never falls, it never ends. And Paul's point today is that it is this mark of love which most distinguishes it from the gifts that the Corinthians were boasting in, gifts like prophecy and tongues that we'll talk about. Now for weeks now, we've kicked the can down the road on really talking about what I think everyone wants to talk about when it comes to spiritual gifts. What everyone wants to talk about when you mention spiritual gifts is they want to know whether or not uh, miraculous gifts, sign gifts, things like prophecy or tongues or uh, healing or so forth are still valid today. Does God still give these gifts? This is what the evangelical church is divided on when it comes to the issue of gifts. And that's what everyone wants to know. And we've just said we'll talk about that later. Well, today is kind of... Later, so we need to do a bit of theology of the gifts. When it comes to the question of whether or not the miraculous gifts or the sign gifts, in particular we're talking about tongues and prophecy and gifts of healings. Uh, When it comes to the question of whether or not these miraculous or sign gifts are still given today, that they still exist today, there are basically two camps within uh, the boundaries of Orthodox Christian Believe Neither of these groups are heretical. This is not a heresy or anything like that. Those two camps are called cessationism and continuationism. We should have a, a graphic there. It should say continuationism, but it says creationism. I didn't make that for the record. Uh, cessationism and continuationism. 
you should all be in creationists, right? But, uh, all right, so on one side, it's cessationism, right? Does cessationism believe that the gifts continue or cease? Cease, right? That's why it's called cessationism, all right? So some, those are called cessationists, they think that the gifts have ceased, and they either think that they ceased with the, the death of the last apostle or whenever the, the canon was closed or whenever the gospel had spread to a certain degree or whatever it might be. So cessationists might differ on when exactly the gifts cease, but they all agree that these miraculous, these sign gifts like tongues and healing and prophecy are no longer available and shouldn't be sought or practiced within the church today. That's called cessationism. On the other end of the spectrum is uh, creationism, apparently. I like to think of it as continuationism because that's the actual name, which obviously holds that the gifts have continued, all right? And so gifts like prophecy and tongues and so forth uh, should be pursued and practiced today. They can be abused, but that doesn't uh, necessarily mean that they don't exist. Now, each of those positions isn't just a monolithic position. Each of those positions are actually really diverse, they're actually a spectrum even within those camps. For example, within the, did it change? Yes. See, if you were a cessationist, how did that happen? All right, that's a miracle. So in each of those positions, there is a degree of a spectrum. For example, within the continuationist camp, those who hold to continuationism, uh, all of them would say that the gifts are available today but uh, many would say that they are not normative. They might be considered like cautious continuationists. Others, though, would say that these should be normative. Right? You have uh, views even like uh, hyper-charismatic Pentecostalism, which says that these gifts are normative and that everyone should speak in tongues or something like that. So there's a lot of diversity even within each camp. Another thing you need to know is there are a lot of good theologians in each camp. All right, really helpful cessationists include guys like John Calvin, Martin Luther, Jonathan Edwards, modern day guys like John MacArthur and Tom Schreiner. But on the other hand, you have really faithful, really good theological minds that are continuationists like John Piper and D.A. Carson and Sam Storms and Wayne Grudem. So sometimes you might hear this sort of a caricature of cessationism that cessationists don't really care about the spirit. They just want to ignore the spirit. They worship the Bible rather than God. And that might be true of some, but certainly that's not true of all cessationists. And likewise, there, there could be a, a caricature of continuationists that they don't really care about scripture. That they don't really, they're not really interested in submitting their feelings and experiences to the authority of God's word. But instead, they just follow their feelings and, and so forth blindly. Again, that might be true for some, but certainly it isn't true uh, of all. There are faithful men and faithful women in both camps who genuinely seek to follow the Spirit and to submit to Scripture. Again, this is not an issue of heresy or something like that. In fact, even on our elder body here at Parkway, we have guys who would, hold, uh, who would fall on the cessationist side of the spectrum and we have others who would fall on the continuationist side of the spectrum. So if you're of the opinion that uh, one of these positions is really stupid and that anyone who holds uh, the contrary position is, uh, is crazy, then I would encourage you to consider the fact that you're probably dealing with some theological arrogance on your part. 
And I would call you to repent uh, of that. You can, you should believe that, that there are better arguments on one side than the other. They can't both be true. There's a logical contradiction there. They can't both be true. So you, you can, you should have a strong conviction on it, but you should also have humility and you can't just simply dismiss someone who disagrees with you. So in preparing for this discussion over the past few months, the, uh, the elders sat down at one of our elder meetings and we talked through uh, this issue and we came up with a list of things that we might disagree on as elders and even as a congregation and things that all of the, uh, the uh, elders agreed on and I would encourage all of the, el- the, the members to agree on as well. Let's start with our areas of agreement first because by far this is what is most important. All right? What we disagree on is far less important than what we agree on. So every single elder, and I hope every single member of the church, agrees with the following five points. Number one, God still empowers his people with gifts of the Spirit. All right? God still empowers his people with gifts of the Spirit. As we'll see, we might disagree on what kinds of gifts are still available. But if you just say God no longer gives any gifts, that is beyond the bounds of what you should believe. Second, spiritual gifts should be exercised in an orderly and biblical manner. That's somewhat redundant. To be orderly is to be biblical. But spiritual gifts should be exercised in an orderly and biblical manner. Three, God still works miracles among his people, including things like healing. And we should pray for such according to his will. So even if you don't believe that God gives the gift of healing today, that doesn't mean that God doesn't heal. All right? And so uh, I went to a, uh, a seminary, Dallas Theological Seminary, and uh, very much I think the predominant view is cessationism. And yet all of my professors would say, absolutely, we should pray for healing. And, uh, and so even if you are a hardcore cessationist, you should still say God does heal There's just not the gift of healing that's available uh, today. Number four, God still influences, he still guides, he still directs his people through promptings, impressions, affections, and other circumstances, but that our perceptions of those leadings are subjective and thus fallible. So again, we don't want to be deists. We don't want to just simply say, even if you were to say that there is no longer prophecy or something like that, you don't want to swing the pendulum toward deism where God is just kind of uh, taking a step back from his creation. He's not leading his people. He's not influencing his people. He's not involved uh, in your life. God is intimately involved in your life because he is sovereign over the minute details of your life. And then fifth, scripture alone is our ultimate authority and any gift or potential gift of the spirit should be adjudged according to the criteria of scripture. So, All of our elders agree on those. All of our staff members agree on those. But we do disagree uh, among uh, ourselves on the issue of whether prophecy and tongues and gifts of healing are still available and should be pursued and practiced. And the arguments on either side are really complex. Again, this isn't like Arianism versus Trinitarianism or Augustinianism versus Pelagianism. Neither side is heretical. There are good arguments and bad arguments on both sides, but this is a fraternal debate. This is a debate between faithful brothers and sisters who come to different conclusions. Let me give you kind of an overview of the argument, right? 
When it comes to cessationism, cessationism says, again, that certain gifts were needed at the start of the church but have since ceased. All right? The cessationists would say that the Bible doesn't have to explicitly say that the gifts have ceased for a few reasons. Number one, because it's implied by the purpose of the gifts. Number two, because a prophetic word from God today would challenge the sufficiency of Scripture. And then number three, that at the time the New Testament is being written, the gifts were still needed for the founding of the church, but they're no longer necessary since uh, the church has already been founded and it's grown. It has a, a firm foundation. That's kind of the overview of the arguments for cessationism. Again, there's a, a, a ton more arguments and nuance along with that. There is also generally a, a, a role of uh, the recognition of experience when it comes to the issue of cessationism. Many cessationists point to the relative frequency of the abuse of modern gifts as evidence that they aren't truly divinely given. That's cessationism. Continuationism, on the other hand, now I realize I'm doing the the wrong thing with what the spectrum was. Continuationism, on the other hand, says that all the spiritual gifts remain and that they should be practiced today, and that includes the miraculous sign gifts. And continuationists base their argument on the fact that, number one, Gifts are uh, needed today for the strengthening of the body. Number two, the Bible commands the church to pursue and practice the sign gifts. We'll see that in chapter 14. And then number three, the New Testament doesn't ever explicitly say that they have ceased. In fact, as we'll see in our passage today, it seems to imply that they won't cease until Christ returns. All right. So that's an overview of these positions, we'll talk more about that in the coming weeks as we deal in particular with prophecy and tongues. But remember, each position, cessationism and continuationism, each position is itself a spectrum. There are degrees of each. And as we get into chapter 14, we'll talk about uh, prophecy and tongues in particular. But all of this comes up this week given that our, our, our text explicitly says that prophecy will pass away and tongues will See, So you can see how a discussion of the theological issue of continuationism and cessationism is relevant to our text given that our text is going to explicitly talk about the cessation of gifts. So a lot of ink, in fact even a little bit of blood, has been spilled on answering the question when. When will these gifts cease? The question isn't if the gifts will cease. The text clearly says they'll cease. The question is when. We'll get to that in verses 9 through 10. For now, as it relates to this verse, the key thing that I want you to note is that Paul is continuing his exaltation of love as this higher way. Regardless of when the gifts cease, and we'll get to that, regardless of when the gifts cease, the point is that the gifts do cease, and thus they are inferior to that which is eternal, which is love. So rather than boasting in, Rather than you know, putting all of your energy and time into pursuing these transitory gifts, the Corinthians, and us by extension, should be passionate about pursuing love. That's Paul's overarching point. So don't, lose, don't miss sight of the forest in the midst of the trees. This passage isn't ultimately trying to answer our contemporary questions about when the gifts will cease. This passage is ultimately about the supremacy and beauty of love's permanence. Let's keep going, verses 9 through 10. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Notice the first word in this section, for. 
In other words, Paul is clarifying the previous verse by appealing to a reason, to a rationale for what he's just written. So why will the gifts cease? Well, Paul answers that by appealing to this distinction between what is partial and what is perfect or what is complete. The image that Paul uses is actually kind of the image of a puzzle. All right? he, he speaks of parts, like pieces of a puzzle. Raise your hand if you like puzzles. Raise your hand if you hate puzzles. All right? Some people actually hate puzzles. All right? I'm not a big puzzle guy. I typically do one puzzle a year. It's at my wife's extended family's uh, Christmas party, annual Christmas party. I, being an introvert, at some point get overwhelmed with her family, and so I retreat where the introverts are doing a puzzle. And so that's my one annual uh, tradition, all right? I'll take a break and sit down and help, but really it's more about me. So picture, I want you to picture a puzzle, but imagine you don't have the box. You don't have the, the, the picture of, of what the actual puzzle is. And so you don't have the image there, but you're slowly trying to piece it together. But when you finally finish, you can, you, you can finally see Clearly, that's kind of the image that Paul presents here. Our knowledge, our prophecy, all of those sorts of things is limited. Limited by our finiteness, limited by the fact that we still have the residue of sin that affects the way that we think and see and hear and feel and so forth. Limited by where we are in redemptive history. All right, so there's this finitude to our experience, to our knowledge, to our prophecy, whatever it might be. We have a piece of the puzzle but we don't have the whole thing. So it's limited today. We know in part, but Paul Paul says one day the partial will pass away. When? He says when the perfect comes. So this is where a lot of ink has been spilled by continuationists and cessationists alike. Continuationists will say that this verse clearly teaches that the gifts will continue until Christ returns. And some cessationists, not good cessationists, but some cessationists will counter that argument And they will say that when the perfect comes, or the perfect coming, that isn't a reference to the return of Christ, but rather it's to the completion of Scripture. The perfect comes as the perfect canon or something uh, like that. In in reply to that view that uh, when the perfect comes isn't uh, speaking of the return of Christ, but rather the completion of the canon or something like that, uh, I will allow the great scholar Tom Schreiner who, by the way, is himself a cessationist, to answer that. He says, The perfect doesn't refer to the New Testament canon or to spiritual maturity, but to the second coming of Christ. If anything, Paul teaches that the spiritual gifts persist and last until the second coming. In fact, I think this is the best argument for the spiritual gifts continuing until today, dot, dot, dot. Nevertheless, I still think that cessationism is true. All right? So like Schreiner, I agree that the perfect refers to the return of Christ. Unlike Schreiner, I actually hold to a continuationist view of the gifts. All right, That's scandalous for some of you. I myself have never experienced any of the miraculous uh, sign gifts. So I'm not convinced by my own spirits. I'm convinced by Scripture that they haven't ceased. So that's where I happen uh, to land. All right. So some of you are going to like me more because that's where I land. Some of you are going to like me less. Because that's where I land, but that is uh, where I uh, land. All right. I think this passage, though, teaches that the gifts will continue until Christ returns. But I also think that really isn't Paul's primary point here in this passage. 
Paul's point here in this passage isn't really when the gifts will cease. Rather, his point is that the gifts will cease. Right? It's clear from the text that, uh, that the gifts will no longer be necessary when Christ returns. But I don't think this, ba- this passage necessarily precludes the idea that they could cease before that. Does that make sense? It definitely, this passage definitely says the gifts will cease when Christ returns. That's continuationism, but I don't think it necessarily precludes or excludes the idea that the gifts could cease before that. So I'm at least open to the idea that, that uh, this is not a slam dunk, home run uh, sort of uh, argument, all right? It's, it's kind of like saying, I'll be home by midnight. All right? If I say, I'll be home by midnight, that doesn't mean I won't be home at 11, all right? I could be home at 11. I could be home at 10 or whatever it might be. Likewise, the fact that the gifts will definitely cease when Christ returns doesn't necessarily mean that they won't cease before them. I think that it's exegetically awkward to conclude that they will cease before then, but I recognize that's not a slam dunk sort of proof text. Paul's not really exploring the question of, uh, that we're asking, that we're asking from our 21st century context. That's not Paul's point. Rather, his point is to demonstrate that the gifts have an expiration date. There is this built-in obsolescence to the gifts. You remember the big uproar a few years back uh, when it was demonstrated that Apple had kind of uh, introduced software which intentionally slowed down older models, right, to, in, uh, to encourage consumers to uh, purchase newer models? Well, minus all the shady, underhanded corporate stuff there, that's what God does with the gifts, all right? There's this intentional obsolescence to them. They were manufactured to one day be irrelevant. And that's kind of ironic because the Corinthians are fighting over these imperishable crumbs rather than this eternal everlasting feast. I had this image as I was preparing this sermon. Imagine that you're in a cave. You're in a cave with a a few other friends and you're trying to get out of the cave. But it's absolutely pitch black there in the cave. Thankfully... You have one flashlight between you. Now imagine that everyone is fighting over that flashlight. In reality, it doesn't matter who holds the flashlight. Besides, once you get out of the cave, once you get into the sun, that flashlight is irrelevant. So why are you fighting? That's what the Corinthians are doing here. They have these gifts, and rather than simply using them to serve each other, they're fighting over what's temporary. So this is the first sort of illustration that Paul is going to give to make his point. That you have the partial versus the perfect. In verse 11, he'll appeal to another image, that of childhood versus adulthood. Let's check that out. Verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. So remember the context. The overarching point is that love is superior to all the gifts. Or to actually be a little bit more precise and nuanced, it isn't that love is necessarily contrasted with the gifts. It isn't like Paul is saying, don't teach, just love. Or don't prophesy, just love. In fact, he will explicitly tell them to do those things. As uh, commentator David Garland remarks, Paul's discussion of love is not intended to persuade the Corinthians to abandon their prized spiritual gifts but is meant to convince them to employ the gifts with love. Unless they are governed by love, they are spiritually barren. So the point that Paul's making here isn't that the gifts are are, are, uh, unnecessary and useless, but rather the gifts without love are useless. 
Right? It's like a car without uh, gasoline, unless it's a Tesla, right? Or like a vacation, an international vacation without a passport, like Jared talked about last week. So love is this necessary virtue, which is really what fuels and empowers the gifts. And part of the reason that love is necessary, part of the reason that love is superior, is because of its permanence, as opposed to the transience of these other gifts, and as an illustration of that, Paul's already used the uh, imagery of, uh, of what is partial versus what's complete, like a puzzle. And now he uses a second image here, that of childhood versus adulthood. I want you to think for a second about all the things that you did at some point in life that were perfectly reasonable as a child, but would be really inappropriate for you to do now. Right? For example, I gave as an illustration a couple of weeks back. We were potty training my son, right? He can get away with doing stuff at two that I can't, right? And that's true for all of us. Now, think in particular about the differences between the way that a child communicates and an adult communicates. That's what Paul is discussing here, speaking and thinking and reasoning. Notice that language, the verbs there in verse 11. For instance, my, my daughter, she has this strange a habit. I was talking about some members who came over for dinner this past week. She has this strange habit. She's in this room, so hell, Arkin. She has this uh, habit of, of asking these seem, seemingly uh, uh, irrelevant questions. They're completely out of left, left field. I'm telling her about going to the doctor. She'll ask me, what color was the carpet? That's where her mind goes. The most important thing to ask isn't if I have some sort of disease or something like that. It's what color the carpet uh, of the office was or whether I saw any animals along the way, right? So children think and they speak, they communicate differently from adults. And that's okay. We kind of expect that. But imagine the chaos that would result if I'm trying to have a convo with Carl and he's constantly interrupting to ask about how many birds I saw today or something, all right? So the point is that there is this difference between childhood and adulthood, and that difference is analogous to the issue of the gifts. Now, here's where we need to be really careful uh, because anytime there is this analogy in Scripture, we need to ask what are the limits of that an analogy? What is the, the author's actual authorial intent in using that analogy? The, the, the trick for us in interpreting analogies of Scripture is knowing exactly where the analogy is being drawn. Right? No analogy is perfect. We've talked about that before, that the only thing that is perfectly analogous to something is that thing itself. Even if you were to take two seemingly identical objects in this room, they aren't perfectly alike. Right? You take two chairs in the room, if nothing else, they're distinguished by who's sitting on them or where they're positioned in the room. All right, And so nothing is perfectly like. Uh, something else other than that thing. So we need to ask, when we're looking at an, uh, an analogy of Scripture, what part of the analogy applies? For instance, when Jesus says that we're like sheep, does he mean that like a lamb, humans are delicious? All right? Of course not. That would be a misapplication of the analogy. Why is all that important for 1 Corinthians? Because maybe you think that what Paul is saying is that using the gifts is immature. The people who speak in tongues or immature, or the people who prophesy are like little kids. But when you become mature, you no longer do those childish things. 
That's not Paul's point at all. Whether you're a cessationist or a continuationist, you have to recognize that is not the point of the analogy. Paul's point is, uh, is not that at all. His point is basically the same as he's made in the previous verse, that certain things last for a season, but not forever. And those temporary things are inherently incomplete. So yes, there is a sense in which tongues could be compared to the babbling of a child and that prophecy is like the communication of a child. But Paul would say that's also true of all of the gifts. Teaching, for instance. In the very next verse, Paul is going to say that all of our knowledge is in a sense incomplete and immature. So don't use this as kind of a proof text for your theological position when that isn't actually his point. It isn't just that some gifts are incomplete in a sense, all of them are somewhat incomplete. You see, the, the Corinthians, they believe that certain gifts demonstrated maturity. If you spoke in tongues, that was a sign of maturity. By the way, there's an interesting similarity to what the Corinthians believed and to much of the modern charismatic movement. That's the same assumption that many charismatics and Pentecostals would hold today, that tongues or prophecy is some sort of sign of maturity. That's what the Corinthians had believed. But Paul rejects that idea. He says maturity is demonstrated by love, not by the presence of certain spiritual gifts. I know that from my own personal experience. I got saved at the age of 23. I immediately found that, my, that I had certain passions that most of my friends didn't have, all right? Most of the people in my little Christian bubble didn't enjoy the same things that I did. I got saved within that first year. I was reading Jonathan Edwards. I was reading Martin Luther. I was reading Augustine, all right? And because I had a little bit of knowledge in that area, I was immediately asked to lead something like a community group, and it grew. And as it grew, I got more opportunities for leadership, But here's the point. I wasn't mature at 23. Far from it. I was smart. I had gifts. But I wasn't mature. So don't confuse the two. Right? Outwardly, I might have seemed to be somewhat stable. But inwardly, I was full of lust and pride and fear and selfishness and sloth. And on and on I could go. Now, obviously, I hope it's obvious at least, I've grown since then. I've grown intellectually. I've been to seminary, I've read a lot of books, I've grown as a communicator, I think, and yet theological growth, as important as that is, and it's very important, as important as theological and pedagogical growth might be, that's not the mark of Christian progress and Christian maturity. What is? Well, the fruit of the Spirit. We talked about this a few weeks back. I think uh, Tim actually talked about it in his sermon. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Right? That's the mark. That's the measure of maturity, not how many books you've read or how many catechisms you've memorized or how often you speak in tongues or how much money you give or how well you lead worship or any of the million other things that we tend to celebrate in others. The Corinthians spoke in tongues and they prophesied and they had compelling preachers. And at the same time, if you read the book of 1 Corinthians, you realize they're seeing temple prostitutes, they're suing each other, they're getting drunk at church. Not exactly exemplary, mature behavior. Let's keep going. Verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. This is an uh, interesting illustration, uh, given that historical scholarship suggests that uh, Corinth was actually well known 
for the production of good quality mirrors, at least by the standards of that day. So this would have been a a really cultural relevant uh, analogy, all right? Not only for the Gentiles would it have been really relevant, but also for for those who are steeped in the Old Testament, for uh, Jews and so forth. How so? Well, because this this passage seems to be an illusion, not illusion like a magic trick, but an illusion, an allusion to an Old Testament story. Look at Numbers 12, 6 through 8. Numbers 12, 6 through 8. God is speaking, and he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? You might or might not remember this particular story. Israel has already been delivered from Egypt. They're wandering around in the desert. All of a sudden, Moses' brother and his sister, Aaron and Miriam, they decide that they're a little upset at Moses. They're a little jealous. They say, why does Moses get all the glory? Why does Moses get all the credit? We're pretty awesome ourselves. Unfortunately for them, God doesn't like their little pity party, and he actually defends Moses. In fact, God curses Miriam with leprosy for a few days, and then he says what we just read. What does that have to do with 1 Corinthians? Well, notice the phrase mouth-to-mouth that's used there in numbers. That's a Hebrew idiom. It means something like face-to-face, which is the language that uh, Paul uses in 1 Corinthians. And then notice also the word riddles there in, uh, uh, in Numbers. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that word is enigma, which sounds like what English word? Enigma, right? Now go back to 1 Corinthians. If you were looking at the Greek, the word dimly, the word that's translated dimly there, is actually two Greek words in enigma. It's the same root word there. So Paul seems to be alluding to this passage there. Though Aaron and Miriam were prophets, though they were leaders of Israel, though they were gifted, yet there is a distinction between their intimacy with God and their knowledge of God and that of Moses' intimacy with God and knowledge of God. They understood God in an enigma and in riddles, but God spoke uh, but, but Moses spoke to God directly. And Paul says that is somewhat analogous to the discussion of gifts. Now we see and now we know dimly and partially, but then we will see clearly and fully. Now we see in part. It's the same way we talked about earlier when we talked about a puzzle. Now we have some idea of the picture. It's beginning to emerge as we piece it together little by little, but one day the full picture will emerge. But here's what I think is really fascinating about this passage in particular. Notice that Paul puts himself in this present condition with us. He writes, we see in a mirror dimly and I know in part. Why is that so crazy? Well, because Paul was an apostle. He had literally seen the resurrected Christ. He had been to heaven by means of a vision, according to 2 Corinthians, all right? Well, I would give to see and to know what Paul had seen and knew. And yet even that is but the fringes of God's glory. Even that pales in comparison with what is to come. 
one day, this is Paul's point, one day we will see so much clearer and better than even Paul did. One day we won't need corrective lenses. We will have this perfect sight of God. As incredible as it was that Moses talked with God face to face, in a sense there was more to behold with the revelation of Christ. The, the, the Apostle John captures this idea in one of the great incarnational Advent Christmas texts in, uh, in John chapter 1, verses 17 through 18. It says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Notice that contrast that's drawn there. Moses, the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, a guy who we just read in Numbers, spoke with God mouth to mouth, face to face. He spoke directly with Yahweh, but he only saw so far, could only reveal so much. In some sense, he talked with God face to face, but in another sense, he had never seen God. Notice what it says there. No one has ever seen God. Remember the story even of him asking to see God's glory, and he saw this little slight hint as God passed by him. What's my point? Well, I think any of us who long to behold the glory of God would long to see what Moses saw and to know what Paul knew, and yet they would say that's but a foretaste of what we will one day see in here. What does that have to do with the gifts? Well, imagine that you're driving You're talking on the phone with someone. You're talking with your spouse or your kid or your parent or your best friend, whoever. It doesn't matter. But you're having a conversation with them. And as you're having a conversation with them, you're actually driving to their house. And then you pull up in the driveway and they come outside to greet you. Do you stay on the phone? No. What do you do? You have that awkward moment where you look at them and then you kind of realize, okay, we probably should hang up. Why? Because you're face-to-face. That inferior technology, that inferior technological means of connecting you is no longer necessary. It's irrelevant. It's obsolete. That's what Paul is saying about the gifts. Are the gifts helpful now? Absolutely. Do prophecy and teaching and so forth communicate God's love and grace and truth to you? Absolutely. Do we need the gifts today? Yes, absolutely. But are they permanently necessary? No. One day you'll be face to face. And thus all of these intermediaries, all of these means, these media, these gifts will no longer be needed because we will see and know fully. Now before we move on, I just want to briefly comment on the last phrase. could be confusing here. He writes, we will know fully even as I have been fully known. That doesn't mean, by the way, that we'll be omniscient, we'll be all-knowing. Instead, it's just a way of describing the fact that all of the things that currently hinder our ability to know God fully will be eradicated in the eschatological consummation. All right? In particular, our minds will be free from the residue of sin, the limitations of this present age, and we will enjoy this uninterrupted, unhindered knowledge of and relationship with God. All right? By the way, knowledge in Scripture often refers not just to intellectual understanding. That's how we use the word knowledge today. That's not how it's used uh, in Scripture. Knowledge, to know in Scripture, uh, implies relationship and intimacy. So when it says that we will know, it doesn't just mean know about. It means that we'll have fellowship with, that we'll commune with, we'll enjoy uh, relationship with. And that promise, that glimpse of this future hope, is what should humble us. What should compel us in the present 
to use our gifts, not for our own glorification, but rather for the glorification of God and for the edification of others. Why has God given you the gifts that he has? We've talked about this a lot over the past few weeks, and we'll keep talking about it. The reason that God has given you the gifts that he has is not so that you might be celebrated, but so that you might serve others. God has gifted you, not just for you, not just for your immediate family, but rather for the spiritual family, for the body and blood uh, bride of Christ. So again, remember the context. You are a member of a body, and you have a function in the flourishing of that body. So don't use your gifts to serve yourself, but rather to serve others. That's love. Last verse, verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. So to make his theological point, in the previous verses, Paul chose these three particular gifts. He talked about prophecy. He talked about tongues. He talked about the gifts of knowledge. Those are the three things he, he, he mentions. And in order to pro, uh, kind of provide a counterbalance, he provides this triad of virtues, faith, hope, and love. Why does he choose those? Well, one reason is just because it's a common Pauline emphasis, right? You probably realize this, that uh, individual preachers have their own individual unique emphases, right? John Piper, he's always talking about enjoying God, that God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. R.C. Sproul was known for always talking about the sovereignty and holiness of God, always talk about the fatherhood of God. Tim always talks about Nazi Germany, right? Everybody has their thing. That they, uh, they talk about. Well, Paul's thing that he always talks about is faith, hope, and love. You actually find this triad all over the place in his epistles. So that's one reason that he chooses it is because that's just common language for him. But another reason that he uses it is because it fits the context. Look back at verse 7. 1 Corinthians 13, 7. Love bears all things. Notice this. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Notice belief and hope, faith and hope. I think this helps us to understand why Paul says that love is the greatest. There have been a lot of attempts over the years to answer the question why. Why does he say love is the greatest of these three virtues? And some have said that love is the greatest because love endures, whereas faith and hope are somewhat temporary. For instance, the, uh, the church father Tertullian wrote, rightly is love the greatest. For faith departs when we are convinced by vision, by seeing God, and hope vanishes when things hoped for come about. But love both comes to completion and grows more when the perfect has been given. So that's one answer. The reason that love is greatest is because it endures versus uh, faith and hope, which somewhat diminish uh, whenever Christ returns. Others say that love is greater because love mirrors God himself, right? Love is this demonstration of self-giving, which embodies the very character of God in a way that faith and hope don't. Faith and hope, uh, at least in some sense, benefit ourselves, but love is really directed outward. Love is this selfless giving. Love is truly the gift that keeps on giving. It's the one gift that is inherently unable to be hoarded. So love is this, in its this unique sense, images God. So that's the second reason that people say that love is the greatest. The third answer as to why love is greater, is just simply to recall the context. If love inherently believes all things and hopes all things, like verse 7 says, then love encompasses the other gifts. So love is greater because it necessarily includes faith and hope. You can't have love without faith and hope is kind of the point. I think all of those three answers may be helpful in understanding why 
Love is greater, but Paul doesn't really answer the question why. He just says love is greater and just kind of leaves it at that. But bear in mind the overall sort of point here. Paul's point is that every gift is helpful. Every gift is necessary for the proper functioning of the body. But his point is also that no one gift is essential for all Christians to have. You can be a faithful child of God and not speak in tongues or not be able to teach or not prophesy or not have a gift of healing or whatever it might be. But you can't be a faithful Christian and not have faith or not have hope or not have love. Those are kind of the sine qua non, the, the thing without which Christianity isn't Christianity, right? So let me wrap up chapter 13 by asking this question. This is kind of the overarching question, and it will lead us into our discussion of the miraculous gifts in chapter 14. Here's the question. Do you use your gifts in a way that is fueled and empowered by love? Is doing what's best for others, even when it costs you, the measure of your teaching? Is doing what's best for others, even when it costs you, the measure of your counseling? Is doing what's best for others, even when it costs you, the measure of the way you use your time and money and energy? This is one of my biggest complaints against most modern evangelical thinking around the gifts. First, that most gift tests don't really, don't really measure whether or not you have a, a, a gift. It just measures what you love, right? They, they don't really measure. If you're good at it, they just kind of measure if you like it. I've known guys who are really bad at teaching. They think they have the gift of teaching just because they like teaching, right? In response, I would say that I love singing, but if you were to ask Tim, he would say, I don't have the gift, quote, of being in tune, all right? So liking something doesn't necessarily mean that you're gifted in that area. That's what most spiritual gift tests, though, are going to focus on, whether or not you like something. So that's step one of this evangelical reduction of thinking about the gift. Step two then tells us, it gives us permission to do what I think is the very opposite of what Paul's telling us to do. Step two of evangelical reduction of the gifts says that I should just function in the body by doing the things that I enjoy. And so I'm not going to do the things that I don't enjoy. I like leading a Bible study, so I'll do that. I don't like watching someone else's kids, so I'm not going to do that. I like to read books, so I'll do that. I don't like to share the gospel. I must not have the gift of evangelism, so I'm not going to share the gospel. Or conversely, I like to talk to people, so I'll share the gospel. But I don't like to read, so I'll just neglect all of the commands of Scripture that we think about God and renew our minds and so forth. Or I like to do administrative tasks, but I don't like to invite people into my house. We can keep going. That's the current state of evangelical thinking around the gifts. We want to exercise gifts that are comfortable and that are convenient for us. The only problem is that's contrary to the very nature of love as we just defined it. Love's doing what's best for others even when it costs you. Most evangelical thinking around the gifts just simply makes the gift a vehicle for your own desires, your own preferences, your own passions, your own comforts and conveniences. They're about you. And again, that's antithetical to the very nature and purpose of the gifts. Do you get that? We talked about this last week. If you have incredible gifts but you don't have love, you don't exercise them in a loving way, you're a clanging cymbal. You're a noisy gong. They don't build up the body. 
And as Jared talked about, it's not merely that they just kind of leave it at neutral. They actually tear down the body. So at the end of the day, as we're talking about gifts, I'm not as concerned that you know your gifts. I'm concerned that you love. And that means meeting needs that are around you regardless of your gifts. Maybe you hate kids. I don't care. The body needs help in preschool. I'm telling you that. Maybe you hate cooking. That's okay. Get takeout because you have to be hospitable. Maybe you hate people. That's not a good reason not to welcome visitors or to get involved in community. Maybe you hate giving away your money. That's no reason to neglect the commands to be generous to the church and to others. So the body has countless needs. We could just sit up here all day long and just rehearse the various needs of the body. Not just obvious ones like preschool and finances. We need people that are doing informal Bible studies and book studies. We need people to be sharing the gospel with their neighbors and co-workers. We need uh, people to be discipling their kids. We need uh, people to be um, uh, discipling each other. The elders exist for the work of ministry, but you, the members of the body, actually get to do that ministry. We need you. So nothing in the passage that we looked at today is terribly novel. We've talked about all these things before. And yet sometimes, for whatever reason, the Spirit, according to his discretion, just decides to take something, some old truth, and breathe life into it. So that's my hope, really, for Parkway. That's my hope for us collectively, that we will be a people that are known, not primarily for our theological acumen, not primarily for our conservative social leanings, not for our worship style or our personalities, but rather, we'll be a people who are known for love. That's my hope. Let's pray to that end, and then we'll prepare for communion. Father, I thank you for the gifts that you give your people. Everything from uh, gifts like we're talking about in this passage, uh, or in the passages of 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, things like teaching and administration and hospitality and tongues and prophecy, and on and on we could go, but also gifts like families. And, uh, and even the blood that courses through our veins and, and you hold together our hearts and our lungs and you give us the gift of breath. And then you give us salvation in your son and you give us scripture in your spirit. And so we could go on and on with the ways that you have given us. I pray that you would make us a people who are marked by gratitude for the gifts that you give and then also by love in the way that we um, steward those gifts for your glory and for the good of others. Help us to just pray that there's nothing in our flesh that wants that. And so we need your spirit to renew us and to awaken us, to vivify the things of the spirit. We pray these things because you love us. So we ask in Christ's name, amen.